I've actually titled this morning's message something a little bit different, a prelude. It's a prelude to Revelation 6, and we're going to be looking at an overview of the tribulation period. If you remember, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the outline of the book of Revelation was given to us. In fact, let me read it to you. The Lord spoke to John the Apostle and said, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And we looked at the outline of the book of Revelation and how the, the, the things which uh, he had seen were those things in chapter 1 where we see the glorified Jesus Christ in his glorified form. And we looked at that when we were in chapter 1. And the things which are, according to John at this time, because he is a part of the church as well, really encompasses chapter 2 and 3, which really speak of the seven churches of Revelation. They were seven real churches in Asia Minor, and they also, in, in, in various ways, represent the entire church age, of which we are still in, correct? Because as long as we are here, we are still in the church age. The church age has continued, has, has, has continued from the day of Pentecost up until the current day until the Lord comes in the rapture to retrieve his bride to himself. And so that is the church age. So we are still living in that age, but we know that it's rapidly coming to a close. We believe the Lord could come back at any time. But notice in the outline in, in verse 19 of chapter 1 that says, write the things which will take place after this. And we began to look at chapter 4. In fact, chapter 4 begins with the very same words, after these things. And so now we are looking into the future because that, that Chapter 4 hasn't happened yet, because we believe that either simultaneous with that event or just prior to that is when the church will be removed. The church age will end, and then we will be in glory. And John records for us in chapters 4 and 5 what is going on in glory at that time, yet future to us today. And he also gets into, and it's a heavenly scene, isn't it? We looked at that for a couple weeks. The scene is in the heavens, because where is Jesus? He's in the heavens, where is the church at that time? In glory with him, because they've just been raptured. They are with him. But now when we get into chapter 6, this begins, this is that third section again, but it's a really pivotal, pivotal section because it really speaks of God's wrath being poured out. We call it the Great Tribulation Period. And this last uh, section of Scripture really lasts from chapter 4 until the very end of, of, of the book of Revelation. But specifically for the Great Tribulation, we're really looking at uh, chapter 6 through 18, the end of 18, where it is a period, the Bible tells us, it's a seven-year period after the church is removed where God will pour out his wrath upon a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. See, that is yet future to us. We know that because we haven't been, we haven't been taken and we see, as, as Jesus said, you know, you're going to see these signs coming. And we're seeing those signs approaching his second coming, meaning his second full coming to the earth. And if we're already seeing those signs begin to take place, 
then we got to back up even further than that. And that's when he comes for the church. Because the Bible tells us very clearly that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain His sal- but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the Bible is replete with this concept of the Lord removing his bride, removing his faithful remnant before he pours out wrath. We see it in Genesis and Genesis 19. Who did he remove before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot who is not the, the most devoted Christian, but the Bible calls him a, a Christian. And God removed him and his family before God poured out his wrath. And over and over again, we see that in the scripture of God doing that. So the pattern is very clear. And why would God drag his bride through the mud? Why would he cause her to go through his wrath when it was what he did on the cross that delivered us from the wrath? Amen? The ultimate wrath is the second death. God doesn't need for you and I to go through the tribulation to be purified. We have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. End of, end of subject. That is done once and for all. I think we all agree. Amen? And so there's only one way to think about this then, is that this is yet a period of time in the future where after the church is removed, the Bible says there's a seven-year period where God's wrath will be poured out. And there will be persecution during those seven years because there will be the option, there will be the possibility of people to be saved during that great tribulation period. Is it going to be easy? No. It's going to be nearly Impossible, but it's not going to be impossible. It's not going to be impossible, but the deception is going to be so great, folks. You and I live in gravy train right now because we have received by faith when things are real easy, but when the great tribulation comes, when this period that we're talking about begins, the deception will be so great. You think the deception's really heavy now? Wait till the church is removed, and then there's going to be great deception. The light, in a sense, in the church at least, will be removed. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. He'll still be here, but in a different fashion, in a different role, if you will. But it's going to be difficult. And there will be people in the tribulation period who will get saved, a a small remnant comparatively, but it will cost them their lives. And we also know that there are 144,000 Jews that will be preserved through the tribulation And they will be persecuted. So it's going to be a time for the believers on the earth at that time, the small remnant that it's going to be, they will be hunted. They will be persecuted by this man of sin that the Bible calls the Antichrist or the lawless one. That's what's going to happen. They're going to be hunted. But it will predominantly be a time of God's wrath upon a world, again, that has rejected his only means of salvation. That means if you've received Buddha and you follow Buddha for the rest of your life until you take your last breath, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. If you've received Allah and you've served him and and you're a Muslim and you continue on until your very last breath, I'm sorry, but you're not going to go to be with the Lord. The gospel is open to every single human being on the earth, regardless of anything. It's a narrow road, but everyone is invited on that narrow road. Have you gotten on that narrow road? Are you on the narrow path that leads to life? Or are you still on that broad path that leads to destruction? Many there are that are on that path. Jesus told us that. And so we have to be very careful. And thank God that you and I belong to the church 
And when this church age is done, the Lord will call us up. He will say, come up here, just as he did in chapter 4 of Revelation. So this is a period of time. And before we actually get into Revelation chapter 6, we're going to look at at an overview of this period before we get into it. So next week we'll get into Revelation 6. But we really need to talk about what this period is and and what the Bible says about this period as a whole. Very important for us. It's It's a very... Uh, significant doctrine for the church. So, what will happen after the rapture of the church? A gentleman by the name of Joseph Seiss, who was an American theologian and a Lutheran minister, believe it or not, he wrote one of the, one of the best commentaries on the book of Revelation. It's hard to find. You can only get it in print. Actually, I just found it online. Uh, but it's a really fantastic book, but it's not an easy read by, by any means. But he said this concerning what happens when the church is removed and the tribulation begins. He said this. He says, Indeed, then only will commence the time when evil shall rush unhindered to its highest bloom of daring and blasphemy. That which hindered being taken away, then shall that wicked be revealed, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they received what? Not the love of the truth. Notice the truth is love that they might be saved. And even Jesus himself said this. He said, unless those days were shortened in the tribulation, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those saints and those Jews living on the earth during that time who have received Christ, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. They will be shortened. And so in the Bible, this seven-year period of time after the rapture is called at least a couple of things. The 70th week of Daniel, you've heard that. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah, it says, Alas, for that day is great, that, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So this is a time coming on the earth which is horrible. In fact, the, uh, let me just go through it. And then he says, and there's also another phrase for this period of time. And of course, we know it as the great tribulation period. In Daniel, it says, At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands, watch over the sons of your people, speaking to Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And so we know that this, this time is a time of great tribulation. And so when, as, as we get into Revelation chapter 6, this coincides with what we've called Daniel's 70th week, or the Jacob's trouble, or the great tribulation period. It's a time when the Antichrist... Now, the Antichrist is not this guy who's in a red suit with a, with a long t- pointy tail with a pitchfork. Okay? Everybody has this persona or, or personages or an image of the Antichrist being this little devil. Well, when he first shows up on the scene, he is going to be the savior. <laughs> Lowercase s. He's going to make everything work. After the church is removed, he's going to come on the scene And he's not going to be indwelt with Satan himself at that time, but he's going to be empowered. He is going to be very, um, he's going to change the world. And the world will follow after him. He'll be probably good looking. He'll be well spoken. You better believe it. And he'll have an appearance of righteousness. And everyone will look at this guy and think, wow, he's got the answers to everything. And so we know that that is coming 
So turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, because we need to look at this time frame before we get into Revelation 6. Because again, Revelation 6 through chapter 18 is what we call this great tribulation period. So it's good that we understand what's happening during this time, what the Bible has to say about it. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. This passage, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, is what's called the, the, uh, the, really the key to end-time prophecy. And it's a, it's a message that Gabriel, from the Lord, gave to Daniel. And he said to Daniel, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And these seventy weeks is, is not literally seven, seventy-seven, you know, or seventy-seven days, you know, a week is seven days to us, but what he's speaking of is a week of years. Seventy-sevens, in other words, 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. And we see this precedence, this idea of uh, a week of years. For you and I, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but biblically it's in many places. You remember in Genesis chapter 29 when Jacob swindled, J uh, uh, sorry, Laban swindled Jacob when uh, Jacob wanted Rachel, right? And he had to work for him for seven days. What does it say? And let me just read this to you. In Genesis 29 and verse 19, and Laban said, isn't it better that I give uh, her to you that I, or uh, is it it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her, ma, uh, give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Right? And you remember on his wedding day, Laban did a switcheroo on him. And I don't know where, where Jacob's head was. I don't know if he had too much wine or maybe it was just dark and maybe the veil. I have no idea. Either way, um, it says <laughs> he did the switcheroo on him. And then finally, he figures this out the day after. And he goes to Laban and he says, you know, I wanted, I wanted Rachel. Why did you give me Leah? And so Laban said, it is not to be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Notice he says, fulfill her week. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me, uh, me still another seven years. So when he talks about a week, he's talking about a week of years. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's really what's happening here. So it's a week of years. And notice that the, uh, the rest of verse 24 in Daniel, what is it for? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, there, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore, notice, to restore and to build Jerusalem, the walls, etc., until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which a total are 69 weeks, correct? Seven plus 62 is 69. 69 weeks, the street shall be built and the wall even in troublous times. And so what this is referring to is a decree that Artaxerxes Longimanus made back in March 14th, 445 B.C. There were four different decrees that the Medes and the Persians uh, had made after the Babylonian Empire. Remember, the, the Jews were in captivity in Babylon even during that time. But there were four decrees, one from Cyrus, another from Darius, and two from Artaxerxes. And it was the fourth one from Artaxerxes where he actually had them go and rebuild the walls specifically, because that's what Daniel's prophecy here says, doesn't it? 
let, let me uh, let me bring something up here. So from the uh, from the time of the going forth of the commandment until Messiah the Prince will be four hundred and ninety years, three hundred and sixty day years times seven. What does that equal? One hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred eighty days. In Nehemiah chapter two, it talks about this. You can read that in detail about um, Nehemiah's um, discouragement over the walls and the gates of his city, Jerusalem, that had been torn down and burned with fire during the captivity and during the siege uh, from Babylon. And now that uh, Artaxerxes is in power, he's now Nehemiah is his cupbearer. And he has this great relationship with the king. And the king says, what, what are you upset about? And he says, my, the gates of my city of Jerusalem are all torn down. And he says, what do you need? And so ultimately, Artaxerxes gave all the materials necessary to go back and to rebuild that temple. To rebuild that temple. And specifically, it was to repair the walls and rebuild the city. Because that's what Daniel's prophecy says here. And that's exactly the decree that Artaxerxes had given. And so, to make a long story short, we've been through this. If you were with us for the uh, time during the um, uh, Palm Sunday, we talked about this prophecy. But if you start with March 14th, 445 B.C., and you go forward 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years, 490 years, you actually come to a specific date, 173,880 days later. On the very day, what happened? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. You recall that? We call that Palm Sunday. It was the first time he allowed himself to be as king brought into his city. And it was that very day that was the fulfillment of this prophecy. But notice what goes on, and that was April 6, 32 A.D. But notice what happens in verse 26 now of Daniel. And after the 62 weeks, in other words, after the 7 weeks and the 62 weeks, I won't go into detail about that, but basically it's 69 weeks. After those 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. This is interesting, this phrase, the people of the prince who will come. Who was to come? Who was it that came against Israel in 70 AD? It was the Romans. And so Daniel's saying, after these 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. He will be crucified. He will be executed. But not for himself. He did it for the people. He did it for the whole world, actually. And then, after his crucifixion, what happened in 70 AD, some 35 years later, the Romans came. The people of the prince that shall come. So the Romans came. The Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And you remember in the book of Daniel, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this golden image, or of this large image where the head of the image was gold and the chest and the arms was made of silver and the middle part was made of bronze and then uh, legs of uh, uh, um, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And Daniel, later on, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, he tells us who those 
those different personages were. And Babylon was certainly the world empire with the head of gold. And then the Medo-Persian empire were the ones who came after and conquered Babylon. And then Greece under Alexander the Great came after them. And then Rome came after them. And that was the period when uh, Jesus was alive on the earth. The Romans were still in power until 476 when the fall of Rome happened. But it also speaks of, finally, another world kingdom that hasn't yet risen up. And that was the very the, 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 the clay mixed with the iron, the iron mixed with clay, this last part, the very legs, the very bottom of the legs of this image that he saw. And that is a revived, we believe, a revived Roman Empire yet to come upon the earth, of which the Antichrist, the man of sin, will be the head over. Does that make sense? We've kind of talked about that in, in, in the past. So notice verse 27 in Daniel. It says, then he, and this he that he's speaking of is the Antichrist. Again, not the, you know, everyone thinks that he, they, they got this personage of him. But he is going to be a smooth talker. He's going to be a, a, probably a good-looking guy. And he's not going to be ultimately the man of sin until midway through the tribulation period. He is going to be wounded. We'll see that in a few minutes. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But notice what it says. Then he, this Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Here's our word again. It means week of years. So that's seven-year period. That's the period that we're talking about right now. That's the period where Revelation 6 begins this week of years. It's called Daniel's 70th week because we're here in Daniel and he's saying on this And this week, in the middle of this 70th week, 69 have already taken place, this last week of years, this last seven-year period will commence. And it won't commence until we are removed. But when it happens, the Antichrist, this man who's going to solve the world's problems, and everyone's going to look up to, he is going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. Think of that. Right now, there's a mosque. It's going to take a real smooth talker to be able to allow the Jewish temple to be built alongside that mosque. Wouldn't you agree? Does that sound like World War III to you? But this man's going to be able to do it. The church will be removed, so there'll be, there'll be, there'll be very little resistance. The church won't be going, you can't do that. But in the middle of this week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So this Revelation 6 begins at the beginning of the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, when the Antichrist makes the covenant with Israel and gives them their temple. Does that make sense? He, make, he confirms a covenant with them for a week. In the beginning, he gives them the ability to build their temple. And then right in the middle of that week, it says in Daniel, in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Why? Because he is going to set up an image of himself. And all of a sudden, his true colors are going to be known. But it'll be too late. It'll be too late. In fact, um, when we've gone to Israel in times past, we've gone to the Temple Institute and it's a really wonderful place there in, in the old city in the Jewish quarter. And you walk in, and they're, they're ready to go. They've got all the instruments ready for this next temple that's going to be built. And I remember, you know, going on a tour with Bill Gallatin and Scott and Pastor Jeff. And I remember people putting in money in this thing. They were accepting donations for the, you know, the building of this thing. And they, they said, don't put any money in. 
You can do what you want, but I would encourage you not to. Why is that? This is the temple. He's like, do you know who that temple is going to be inhabited by? The very next temple is going to be the one that the Antichrist is going to desecrate. Does that make sense? So why contribute to it? (laughs) Right? So everyone starts putting their hand back in the thing and everybody got put in jail. I'm, I'm only kidding. So turn with me to Matthew now, in Matthew 24. This is a, these two passages that we're going to be looking at today are really the two of the most significant passages. Daniel being perhaps one of the most significant, if not the key to it all, because he really gives the, the blueprint, if you will, of what's going to happen. And the Lord gave it to him through the angel Gabriel. And you know, when I think about books like Genesis and books like Daniel and books like Revelation, the critics and unbelievers who are really antagonistic toward the gospel, they really hate those three books specifically. Because if you can remove prophecy and if you can remove the fact that God created in the beginning, you've removed a lot. Significant stuff, right? So these three books are probably the, one of the most important books in all of the scripture, and they're the most attacked out of all the books of the Bible. Genesis and Daniel. Daniel is amazing what God had shown him. Way beyond his years, even yet future to us, going all the way to the end. It's amazing. It's amazing. But let's look in uh, Matthew chapter 24, because Matt, remember Jesus is speaking to his disciples Uh, Let me go there really quick. Matthew 24, go there with me. Uh, Look at verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And Jesus, obviously, speaking of, prophesying of the time, 35 years approximately from that time, that the temple would be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Daniel told us about it, didn't he? We just read it just a few minutes ago. He would, the, that temple would be destroyed. But Jesus gives us, in Matthew 24, it's a very Jewish section of Scripture. He's speaking to the Jews. The church is not mentioned here in Matthew 24 because it's very Jewish in nature. And he's speaking to his disciples who are Jews. And they call it the Olivet Discourse. And the reason they call it that is because he's preaching to them on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just to the east of the Temple Mount. There is a valley, the Valley Kidron Valley. There's a stream that goes through there. It's not there today. But um, right around up, up on that valley toward the east, right next to it, is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you recall. It's also the place that he ascended after his resurrection or after his uh, crucifixion, and after his resurrection, he ascended 40 days later from that very spot. And the Bible tells us in Zechariah, incidentally, that when he returns in his second coming physically to the earth, he's going to come in that very same spot. And, I, and we'll look at that today. But Jesus, in this Matthew 24, gives us a chronological view of what's going to happen during this tribulation period, of which... Revelation chapter 6 will be the beginning of. So the first half of this great tribulation period, 7 divided by 2 is 3.5, right? So the first 3.5 years, Jesus tells us in verse 4 through 14. Let me read it for you. 
You can just write these down, but I'll read it. Matthew 24, 4 through 14, the very first half of the great tribulation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus answered and he said to his disciples, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And we're going to see that in the first seven seals of Revelation, at the very least. He says, All these are the beginning of sorrows, meaning these are the beginning. These are the birth pangs. These, these are like the spasms that a woman would have when she's pregnant and coming close to being delivered. And then he says in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you shall be hated by all nations for my name's sake, the Jews. And then you will be offended, and, uh, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. So Jesus gives us uh, a snapshot of what that first three and a half year period is going to be like. And this corresponds to Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 9, roughly, okay? And so as we look at this, Jesus is giving us this idea. So Revelation 6 through 19 is really this first half of the tribulation. And then he goes on in the very next verse, in verse 15, and this is really what we call the midpoint of the great tribulation. This is where we find the Antichrist really coming to, to his own, being empowered by Satan himself, desiring to be worshipped in a temple, that midpoint is really uh, Revelation 10, chapter 10 through chapter 15, roughly. And Jesus tells us what's going to happen in that midpoint of the Great Tribulation period, right in the center of this seven-year period. In verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we read that just a few minutes ago, didn't we? This image that the Antichrist is going to set up in a, in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him, let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your your flight be not in the, in the winter or on the Sabbath, because mobility will be very difficult. Mobility will be very difficult. He says, when you see this abomination that makes desolate in the holy place, don't even go back to your homes. Flee. Flee. Get out of town. In Revelation chapter 12, in the first six verses, it speaks about this too. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, and this is speaking of Israel as a nation, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, who we know as the, the devil himself, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. These are, fall, these are uh, fallen angels or demons. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who we know as Jesus. 
who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. We know that happened in his death and his resurrection. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has set up a place prepared by God that they should feed her and there 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is three and a half years. And who are these people, these Jews? They are going to be preserved in the rock city of Petra, we believe. You can visit that place today, and it's, it's an, nearly impregnable. I've never been there. I can't wait to go there someday, if the Lord wills. But many people have stored scriptures inside the walls of this cavern that goes way back, and I've never been there, but I've heard of it. And the Jews will hide there from the Antichrist for safety, and God is going to prepare that for them. You can read Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. It talks about the Lord uh, going and um, um, protecting them and, and um, preserving them. We also know that during this midpoint, the Antichrist is killed. There's going to be a wound that he's going to receive, and he's going to die. He's going to literally going to die, and miraculously, he's going to be raised to life. But instead of the Spirit of God indwelling him, there's one who is going to indwell him, Satan himself. Not a demon, Satan himself. Do you understand the difference? Satan himself, not a demon. He is going to be the best speaker and people are going to, their jaws are going to drop when they see this man. He's going to have the answers again. He's going to even be more empowered now. And now he's going to be able to do signs and wonders with all power. God's going to allow it. And the deception is going to be so great that everyone's going to wonder after the beast. What does it say in Revelation 13? Again, we're still in that midpoint, Revelation 10 through 15. So now in Revelation 13, what does it say about this beast from the sea who we know to be the Antichrist? It says, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea or the sea of humanity, having seven heads heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns. And these are all kings and kingdoms. And on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, meaning Satan, gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Notice, his deadly wound was healed. This, this one horn, this antichrist we know him to be, he's assassinated at some point in this mid-period, in the middle part of this tribulation period. And notice what it says. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who was like him? Who was able to make war with him? So he's resurrected by Satan himself, and then in verse 5 of Revelation 13, it says, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for what? 42 months. The second half of the tribulation period. So we had the first three and a half, the midpoint, and now this last three and a half year period where he is going to be filled with Satan. With all power and lying wonders and signs. People are going to lose their minds over this guy. He's going to have everything. Then he opened his mouth 
in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. That's you and I. He's going to be blaspheming us because we're in, in heaven. His tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Those on the earth at that time are going to be chastened. They're going to be actually persecuted. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life slain from the foundation of the world? It's important that, he, that your name is. The only way to know for sure is to give your heart completely to Jesus. And your name will remain there. It is only when we take our last breath, when we have rejected Christ to the very end, that your name will be blotted out. And I pray that none of that, that, that never happens to any one of us in this room or those online, anywhere in the earth. It's God's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not his will. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God wants you to live. And he wants you to live more abundantly. What does it say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? You might want to just write this reference down. By the way, you can also review this online afterwards. If you go to our website after the service, you can watch this over and over again. You can write these things down, kind of absorb some of that stuff, write it down. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 also speaks of this Antichrist during the midpoint period and beyond. Paul says to them, he says, Now brethren, verses chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had already come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So the second coming of Christ is not going to happen unless there comes a falling away and the man of sin has to be revealed who opposes, notice, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So even Paul knew by revelation that this man, and certainly he was a student of the Bible, he knew the passage in Daniel about this abomination of desolation that would be set up in the temple. And, Dan, and Paul now Many years after Daniel is now warning the saints of this very same thing. He says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he be taken out of the way. That's the spirit of God within the church of Christ, which you and I are a part of. Amen. Amen. Smile. I know this is hard. <laughs> Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. We'll see that when we get to the end of Revelation in chapter 19, specifically verse 11. You're going to see Jesus coming back and he's going to destroy the demonic trinity, the Satan, the false prophet, and also the, um, the beast, the Antichrist. He will destroy them with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, all power, signs, and lying wonders with, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because, notice, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so that's the midpoint of this period of time that we're going to be embarking on. What about the second half? What happens in the second half of this, the last three and a half years of this seven-year period? Jesus tells us, again, back in Matthew 24, if we pick up right where we left off in verse 21, the second half is going to be the worst. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus tells what this second half of the Great Tribulation is going to be like. And this corresponds to roughly Revelation 16 through chapter 18. What did Jesus say? He says, for then there shall be great tribulation. Yeah, I, I, would, I believe so. <laughs> it's going to be really tough. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, we've read this before, no flesh would be saved. It's going to be wicked. God's judgment on an ungodly world is going to be horrific, folks. And unless he, sa- unless he shortened that time, nobody would survive it. Nobody would survive it. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it, Jesus says. Because the next time you see Jesus, you're going to see him in the clouds. Does that make sense? You're not going to see him in Manhattan. You're not going to see him in Brooklyn at the Watchtower Society. They actually believe that at one time. That Jesus is at the Watchtower Organization, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's with us. He's in the back room. No, you can't see him. He's too holy. And Isaiah chapter 13 tells us of this time too. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6, let me read it to you. This is a general prophecy of the Great Tribulation, and it could be placed in the first or second half, but it really describes the spirit of what's happening. And Isaiah 6, verse, uh, 13, verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. That's what this time is. The day of the Lord, it's a day of his wrath, is at hand, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid pangs, birth pangs, and sorrow will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. You see what's happening? Where is this wrath coming from, and who is it directed toward? It's coming from God, and it's going to the inhabitants of the earth. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth. And the moon will not, will not cause its light to shine. And I will punish the world. This is what Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was even born. I will punish the earth for its e- I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Amazing. Now, this is all really bad news. In fact, we've got lots of bad news coming up. Aren't you glad that you come to this church? You know what? But mingled in, in, see, this is a part of the scripture that we have to go through. It is. There's no doubt. It's the most difficult part. 
because we're talking about a period of time that you and I aren't going to be a part of. But guess what? Your family and friends perhaps may go through that. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Finally, Jesus, back in Matthew, he gives us, so he gave us the first half of the tribulation, he gave us the midpoint, he gave us the second half of the tribulation, and now in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 31, he gives the time when he comes back physically to the earth, also known as the second coming of Christ. Different from the rapture. The rapture, we meet him in the air, but in the second coming, he comes with us to the earth after the tribulation to this earth physically, terra firma. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. Notice what he says in Matthew 24, verse 27, speaking of his second coming now. So you see the chronology of it in Matthew 24 here? It's laid out very clearly. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. During the time of Armageddon, this time at the end when the the Antichrist and his armies, when they descend upon Jerusalem, which the Bible has a lot to say about, it's going to be a bloodbath. When Jesus comes back, and it's recorded for us in Revelation 19.11, when he comes back, people, millions, will be destroyed in an instant. And there's going to be a great supper for every bird of the air. Every vulture in the Middle East is going to come to the great buffet of God. That's what it says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so now he's speaking after this great tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will, be, will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And guess what? He's coming to the earth at that time. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other, those faithful at the end during the tribulation period. Jude also tells us of this period of time as well, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's recorded for us in Jude chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. You might want to just write it down. What does he say? Now Enoch, now Enoch prophesied this. The seventh from Adam, before the flood... Before the flood, this was prophesied. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, speaking of the wicked men and um, um, unbelievers, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among all of them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So even before the flood of Noah in Genesis 7, Enoch prophesied of the coming, the second coming of Jesus at the end of the great tribulation period. Zechariah chapter 14 is one of my favorite passages. It speaks of this coming of the Lord. Zechariah, written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, and it spoke of the very day when Jesus comes on the Mount of Olives. Remember when I said that he he ascended from the Mount of Olives? He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Let's read it. Zechariah chapter 14, let me read it to you. 
Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. These are the uh, armies of Antichrist and all those. The city shall be taken, speaking of Jerusalem, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, notice this. This is wonderful. This verse 4 of Zechariah 14 is one of my favorite ones. Old Testament. (laughs) It says, And in that day his feet, speaking of Christ, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the south, half shall move toward the north, and then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. That's you and I. Let's pause and let's smile. I'm looking forward to that. He does all the work. We come back with him. And it says right there in an Old Testament passage of something yet future to us. What an amazing passage. Read uh, Zechariah 12 through 14, especially 14, chapter 14. What an amazing pick. I mean, when we were in Jerusalem just a few months ago, uh, in March, we were standing on the Mount of Olives over there, looking out uh, over the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. And I was just looking around, and I was thinking, oh my. You almost get weak in the knees, thinking about what has happened in that area and what is yet to come. And to look at that Mount of Olives and to look all around and say, Lord, one day you're going to set foot. I don't know the exact spot, but somewhere in this area, somewhere on this mountain, you're going to step foot on, just like you said in Zechariah. And this whole thing's going to split. And in other passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah talks about when that mountain splits, there's going to be a fountain coming up from the threshold of the temple. And it's going to go down into the valley, down into the Jordan Valley, to the east, going down the Jordan River, down to the Dead Sea, and the other part of it's going to stream out from the temple and go toward the Mediterranean Sea. And Ezekiel tells us in 47, chapter 47, that fishermen will be mending their nets in the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, because of that, that disaster that's going to occur geographically. When that mountain splits in two, it's going to open a fissure underneath the Temple Mount, which they've already determined and know that it's there right now. And when that thing busts loose as a result of him, water's going to gush forth and it's going to go down into the valley on each side because it's on a hill, right? If you're looking at a cross-section view of Jerusalem is up here, down to the east, down to the Jordan, it's going to flow all the way down to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth. And that water's going to come out from the other side of the Temple Mount and it's going to go toward into the valley all the way to the western side of Israel out into the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible says that the, um, the, the Mediterranean Sea is going to even become more fresh than it ever has been. And certainly the Dead Sea, nothing can live in it now, but it's going to have fish. Fishermen are going to fish there in the millennial rain. You will see it. Maybe we'll be, David. Maybe we'll be one of those fishermen. Maybe they'll let us go down there. If we don't got any business to do for the Lord, maybe they'll let us go down there with our Zebcos. I got one. Would love that. So, as we've looked at this overview 
in a very short period of time. I apologize, there's a lot of information here. I just wanted to take this morning to kind of give us an overview of what this period that we're just embarking on, what it is biblically, what the Bible has to say about it. And as we go forward, we're going to see some amazing things. Does that make sense? So Revelation chapter 6 really begins this first half of the three and a half year period of a seven year period, period which is called the Great Tribulation. And we're going to see those things unfold as we go along. But how do we respond to all of this information? You know, it's one thing to have just a head knowledge of it, but we'll end with this. How should we respond to that information? If it just gets into our head and it's, it's, it's fun to think about, because I love this stuff, honestly. I've read a lot, and I'm looking forward to doing a whole lot more reading and sharpening my understanding of this. What does this do to you? When you read about the wrath to come, you and I won't see that wrath. But what about others? What about family, friends, coworkers? How is this going to challenge us? I love what Paul said to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of God compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, and he died for all, that those who, should, who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. But I love what he says, it's the love of God that constrains or compels us. See, it's, as I read this information, read these things that we looked at today, which are very difficult to hear. May it provoke in you, as it is in me, a, a greater desire, a, a light, if you will, under a little match underneath me to get me motivated, to stir me up again, to reach those around me that don't know Christ. Because here's the thing, folks, judgment is coming. Nobody wants to talk about that. I'd much rather talk about the love of God, the, 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 the things that make us all feel comfortable but we are in a place now where we've got to face this. And guess what? It's coming. It's, it's happening. It's slowly getting that, it's going in that direction. Can you see what's going on in our country right now? Can you see what's going on in the world? We are slowly being set up for this whole thing, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to act like nothing's happening? I think we're beyond that point now where it might be coincidence. The signs are all around us, folks. The signposts are very well lit, and they're screaming at us. The Lord is not screaming at you. He's not going to force you to do anything. But I pray with what he has shown us and what he's showing us and what he has shown us, it will motivate us to evangelism, to tell people about Christ and don't forget to tell them that judgment is coming. I got saved because I was, I, somebody told me that I was on my way to hell. I needed to hear that. If I don't realize that I'm sick, I don't, need a, I don't need a physician. He's not a savior to those who think that they've done well. He's a savior to those who know that they've sinned and have offended God. He's a savior to those who know that they've sinned and the punishment that they deserve. Aren't you glad for the grace of Jesus Christ? the love of God, and for me and you, for you and I, that is the greatest release I can think of. To know his great love in, 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 in all of this. 
Because he's a God of love, he has to be a God of vengeance as well. Love and wrath. There's no way around it. Do you understand? Because God loves so much, he has to punish evil. That's why. And it's his will that none should perish. He doesn't want any one of us in this room to perish. He wants us to live. And he wants all those around you to live. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with these things that we just read and that we're going to be reading about? Please, watch this again. Write the scriptures down. Review them again. Look at them. That was one of the things I remember when I was little, and I'll just end here. I remember when I first got saved and I was reading this book on prophecy by John Walvoord, which is a very great man. I love him. He's long gone now. But it was a book on prophecy, and it was talking about all these things that are coming. And I got saved, and I was so excited. I actually wrote my mom a letter. I hope she still has it somewhere. It was a very, like a three or four or five page letter. I was on fire. (laughs) I was so excited. I still am, by the way. I don't know if you noticed, but um, I was so, it was like the, the honeymoon period. I could barely write it down. I was so excited and yet heartbroken. And I told her in that letter, Mom, if something happens to me, if something happens to me, and all of a sudden, not only myself, but many other people are missing for no understandable reason, this is what happened, and this is where it is in the Bible. Go read it for yourself and drop on your knees and give your heart to Christ immediately. I wrote her that letter with tears, knowing what's coming. And that's the way... I pray that you respond to this too, as let it stir you up again. Tell people the truth, and don't leave out the fact that we need to be saved because we're sinners. Don't leave that out, and don't leave out the fact that judgment is coming, and you can be saved from that judgment. That is what got me saved. I'm not ashamed of it. I'd much rather tell somebody, do you know that Jesus loves you so much? He died for your sins. Very rarely will somebody come up and say, oh, that's so great news. What do I need to do? I wish it were that easy. Some people can. But me, I was such a knucklehead, the Lord had to dangle me over the fire of hell. Either way, he got the job done. I'm his. Does that make sense? Let the love of God, though, like Paul says, let the love of God constrain you. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but what? He's long-suffering toward us. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what does it say in Ezekiel 33? We'll end this. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That is what, that's God's heart. Aren't you glad? What a blessing to be the redeemed. Do you look forward to that day? I look forward to it. Folks, in spite of all the darkness around us, know that you are loved. Know that God loves you. Know that he gave everything for you. His love for you was so great. He stretched out his arms. He loves you so intensely. He loves you so intently. Regardless of anything you've done, you can't upset him. 
He knows your life. Come to him in honesty and reverence and confess every sin and receive him. Be refreshed in him. Amen? Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, this is a very uh, intense uh, this morning, Father, and Lord, I pray that you would do the work in us, do the work in me again, and do it in my brothers and sisters, Lord. Help us as we see these things approaching, Lord, to, to really dig into the word of God, to know what your word says, and, and Lord, to share the very simple gospel message. Lord, we don't have to know all of these details. We can summarize them. We don't have to give chapter and verse. If we can, praise the Lord. But Lord, any one of us in this room, you can equip to share this information with right now at this moment. And so, Father, help us to be those ambassadors for you while the time is relatively easy. And Lord, help us during this time to keep our focus on you and not on the things that are going on. We love you and we thank you. And to you be the glory and honor forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.